from the beautiful West 7th neighborhood of St. Paul, Minnesota, you're listening to the Capital City Podcast. If you guys would like to follow along with the scripture passage, we have it linked at the bottom of the lyrics today. It's the the last couple of verses of Hebrew 1 and then all of Hebrews 2. Uh, So if you'd like to follow along, it's in the in the bottom of the lyrics, I'll invite Abby up and she can read for us. Thanks. Okay. Um, to which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to those, oh, sorry, sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified. What is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him? You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. We do not, we do see, but we do see Jesus who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. All right. Thank you, Abby. I gave Abby a whopping 20 minutes or so of leeway to know that she was reading today, so I really appreciate it. There was once that I had to go back. Somebody was asking me about the Trinity or something, and I went back to listen to one of our sermons from here on it, and when I clicked on it, I was hearing the reader in the beginning, and I didn't know her voice well enough maybe to know. I was like, who's reading, right? There's only maybe three or four people who, who tend to read scripture here. And I didn't recognize the voice. I'm like, I really like this reader. And it took me to the very end to figure out, I'm like, oh, that's Abby reading. Uh, and so then I was like, I got to start asking her to read again. Uh, so thank you for doing that. I appreciate it. Uh, there was a news article that came out this week that said nine in 10 evangelicals don't think their sermons are necessarily too long. So uh, given that, <laughs> just, we'll, we'll make sure to make our sermons longer. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. Um, all right, so this passage is filled. It's a treasure trove of great 
biblical teaching. It's, uh, it opens up, I had Abby start two verses before chapter two, because it opens on one of the most quoted verses from the Old Testament in the New. Uh, Jesus himself quotes this a number of times. So in, in Hebrews 1.13, it says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Have you guys seen this before and kind of scratched your head like what in the world? You know, this is one of those Jesus like owning the Pharisees passages too that, you know, the, the Pharisees are sort of questioning him and he says, well, you know, in the Psalms, David says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit down and take and, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And they're all just like owned, right? And so us reading it 2000 years later, we're like, well, what, what's happening actually? And this verse is so important Because they understood it, and rightly so, to be the Lord, God, Yahweh, talking to my Lord, who is the Messiah. So in the heavenly realm, before creation, here the the God Almighty is talking to the Messiah and saying, here, sit at my right hand. And that's the setting of the entire book of Hebrews, is imagining Jesus sitting down at the right hand of the Father. That's the, the image, if you were to make a painting or a picture, I know Janine sometimes sketches uh uh, sort of artwork based on the sermon. That would be the image of Hebrews is Jesus sitting down at the right hand of the Father. And that's what this whole, arguably the entire book of Hebrews is a, is a, a sermon based on Psalm 110. The, the author is going through and basically preaching expositionally on Psalm 110, which this verse comes from. So in the entire Old Testament, there's this looking forward to a Messiah, to a son, to, hey, sit at my right hand and I'll make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So some of the Hebrew Christians, as you remember, they're kind of being squirmish. Uh, they're getting criticism from their Jewish relatives about the humanity and divinity and the complications of exactly who Jesus is. And so these Jews who were you know, monotheists their whole life are kind of squirming under this Trinitarian thinking. And so some are, in order to get around it, in order to sort of be more appealing to their Jewish relatives, are likely saying, and this is what a lot of scholars say, is that think of Jesus, this isn't true, but this is what they were saying. A lot were saying, think of Jesus like the highest angel, right? Think of him as a Gabriel or a Michael, you know, similar in power to the devil, but a good guy. And uh, of course, this isn't true at all. This is not what the disciples said, not what Jesus said, but it was a kind of convenient fiction that sometimes uh, early converts who then found themselves struggling in a Jewish community would maybe confine this as a middle ground because it was more acceptable to their Jewish relatives that God might have sent another messenger or an angel in the form of Jesus than an actual son, God himself. Uh, so the author reminds them, Jesus is nothing like the angels. He goes on for you know, passages about how Jesus is better than the angels. The whole book can be said uh, to sort of be summarized in all the different things Jesus is better than. Jesus is better than Moses. He's better than the angels. He's better than the law. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the priests. Jesus is better than all of these things that you find your hope in, in your former faith in Judaism. So here, the author of Hebrews is saying, well, to which of the angels did he ever say something so bold, like sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? So remember, the author of Hebrews has just told us that Jesus was in the beginning with God, that he was the means by which all things were created and that all things are going back to. What angel has that story? What angel has that pedigree? And what angel was there before the creation? None of them. So the author goes on at the beginning of chapter two to say, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. 
For since the message spoken through angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So the author is constantly going between building up the believers and encouraging them, but also warning them. Uh, And you almost forget that the warnings are there because the author is so encouraging and builds up the believers so greatly. But the entire letter of the Hebrews is just stacked with warnings to these Christians who are kind of backsliding, kind of considering walking away from the church and walking away from the faith. So this first warning is uh, to stick to what you have heard and do not drift away. Do not retreat back to the safety of Judaism. So uh, though the Old Testament didn't say this, the reason it keeps talking about the the message that the angels had delivered is that uh, New Testament Jews, the Jews at the time of the New Testament, had this concept of the angels being the ones who brought the law on, on Mount Sinai. So we often think of God himself coming and writing the law on Mount Sinai. They often thought it was through the angels. And so all throughout the book of Hebrews, the authors will say, or the author will say, you know, the message of angels, the message of angels, that's the law delivered on Mount Sinai. Um, so he's saying, the author is saying here, don't fall back on the law. Don't go back to what the angels may have delivered on the mountain because Jesus himself, who you believe in, is better than the angels. So there's an encouragement and then a caution. Encouragement and then caution. All right, uh, note, uh, a note here on drifting away. He says, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. Uh, I opened a sermon a week or two ago on this image of swimming against the current in the river, right? And sometimes when you stop swimming, your muscles reward you. And, and if, you just, if you just finally start agreeing with culture, right? If you, instead of looking to the New Testament as your guide, if you just stop swimming and say, fine, I'll just sort of become a part of this culture, uh, it can feel rewarding. And in the beginning, you're in the same spot is when you stop swimming, right? For the first few seconds, for the first few minutes, you look around and it, you know, the territory is about the same. You haven't been carried that far. But six months down the road, you're in a different continent. Uh, and I didn't realize, maybe this is deeply in my subconscious, that in Hebrews 2, the author does the same thing by saying, pay closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. And it's the same Metaphor. It's this drifting word is used of rivers and of things just sort of uh, like when a log, if you wanted to move logs from one part of a country to another, you would just throw them in the river and you'd let people know, hey, in three weeks, all the logs will start coming your way. So get people out in the river ready to catch them. Uh, And that's the same kind of verb that's used here. Uh, So the author has this same thing in mind. Don't drift away. Don't Don't let yourself be carried by the current of the river. Pay attention to what you heard. Keep swimming. Uh, the author says, you'll hear me say he sometimes, could be Priscilla writing this, it could be a male writer, it could be Apollos, Clement, Luke, Barnabas, there's a few choices. The reason sometimes I'll slip and say he is that even if this was a woman writing it, uh, she's using a pseudonym, uh, she's writing under a male gender because there's a few participles in the book that are masculine. And so see, you'll, I'll slip and sometimes say he, but it could be Priscilla. So if I say he, I'm not casting my vote in favor away from Priscilla, I'm just saying the author is choosing to be identified here as male, uh, and so that's why sometimes I'll say he. So the author, he, uh, says, neglecting the law is what got us, Israel, into so much trouble. Neglecting the law is what brought about the judgments, judgments of the Old Testament. 
like exile in Babylon uh, or various kinds of you know, exiles and slaveries and things like that that we had to be delivered from, like in Egypt. So if neglecting the law brought about such a judgment, how could you now walk away from the son, right? The angels maybe delivered this message, which was the law, but now we have the actual son, the word of God through whom everything was created. Imagine the judgment if you walk away from the son. And this is one of the stickiest issues for evangelicals and Hebrews. And I think I think it's why a lot of us who maybe grew up hearing sermons from John Piper or whoever else, uh, why we've sat through a dozen series on Romans and you probably never heard a long series on Hebrews. Has anyone ever heard a long preaching series on Hebrews? How about Romans? Anyone heard a long preaching series on Romans? Yeah, okay, so everyone, everyone nodding your head about Romans. Uh, different churches have sort of different fixations. Um, the Catholic Church loves Luke. The Orthodox Church loves John, a little bit more mystical, a little bit more theological. The Catholic Church loves Luke because it's a lot about uh, lifting up the poor, the disenfranchised. Uh, Protestants love Paul. We love Romans specifically, not just all of Paul. We love Romans and Galatians. That's where we want to sit. That's where we want to preach. I can't tell you how many church plants have opened in the Twin Cities uh, where they're like, yeah, we're going to open by doing a two-year series through Romans. And I'm just like, would you maybe do something else? You know, would you ever consider that? Uh, <laughs> so the reason, um, the reason a lot of people from our background don't like preaching through Hebrews is this. Uh, there are some of these warning passages that talk about the danger of walking away from the sun and that you could end up in a worse place than when you first believed. So it is sort of a... Uh, a, 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 what's the word? Um, a, a belief that no one wants to question. I'm forgetting the word for it. A belief that we hold very dear often is eternal security. Have you guys heard that term? Eternal security. That once someone is saved, once somebody knows Jesus, they can never lose that salvation. If you're truly saved, then you're you know once saved, always saved. It's sort of a, a mocking, sort of low way to say it, but it's about eternal security. And Hebrews, it doesn't necessarily disprove that point. Uh, but Hebrews is the trickiest book if you hold to that doctrine. It's maybe the only book that makes you seriously question, well, actually, it seems here that these are true believers and that then some of them are walking away. And if they do, the author goes on to say later, it's like you're crucifying the Son of God all over again, right? And it's a worse place than if you had never known him in the first place. Like, it's worse to know Jesus and walk away than to never know him. And so for people who believe in eternal security, They'd like to say, well, you know, once saved, always saved. If you ever confess Jesus, but then, you know, fall away, then, you know, you're still saved. And there's this whole debate around this. And I think this is one of the reasons that a lot of sort of sons and daughters of the Reformation don't like to go through Hebrews is that it brings up this awkward point. Uh, and it can be, it can be tricky. Uh, I don't have a strong view on this doctrine because I, I, I feel like the end point ends in the same spot. So you've probably heard some of this debate where someone says, what about somebody who knows Christ, uh, but then walks away? And then the sort of cop-out answer that moves the goalposts is like, well, you know, if they, if they are able to walk away, then they never really knew Christ in the first place, and they never really had the Holy Spirit in the first place. Have you guys heard this, right? It's like, well, if they walk away, then they never really knew Jesus in the first place. And I, I've always found that to be intellectually dissatisfying, right? Because I've known these people. I've walked with these people. I'm like, man, if there ever was a true believer, now again, I'm not the one who decides, right? The Holy Spirit knows. But if there were ever a true believer... That was one of them. And so for them to walk away and for you to be like, well, yeah, I guess let's move the goalposts. They never were a true believer. It's like, well, I disagree. Uh, I don't think so. In my best judgment, they were a true believer. And so it's hard, it's hard to know. Um, 
But it seems like both sides are saying the same thing. Some people say you can be a believer and walk away and walk away from that salvation. Others are saying, well, if you walk away, you were never saved in the first place. But the end result is essentially the same, and that's why I don't enter the debate. The end result is if you do not endure, you're not in the kingdom. If you do not endure, you're not saved, right? That's, both sides are essentially saying the same. Whether you're saved, you walk away, or you never were saved in the first place. If you walk away from the sun, if you don't endure, then you're not a Christian. Uh, and so it's a, it's a tricky debate, and that's why every, every one of you shook your heads on Romans, and no one's ever heard through Hebrews. This is, there are two, the two most intensely uh, formational, important theological books in the Christian tradition are Romans and Hebrews. Hebrews, arguably, in many ways, is more important because it's on issues of who Jesus is, right? So Protestants, our distinction is how you get justified and sanctified by God, and Romans talks a lot about that. Hebrews talks a lot about who Jesus is. So for the first thousand years of the church, you could definitely say Hebrews had a more of a, of a it, it, it punched at a higher weight class. All right, so we'll move on here. Uh, verse four, uh, the reason, again, if you remember from the first week, with the reason we know Paul did not write this, it says, it was declared at first by the Lord, the gospel. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So this isn't the point of this sermon, but just a reminder that uh, Paul went to his grave saying, yeah, I'm the last of the apostles. Jesus himself visited me on the road to Damascus and he gave me the gospel. And I didn't go to the disciples. I didn't go to the church to make sure I had it right. I just started preaching. And then later I sort of covered my bases and made sure. But I just went right in. Whereas this author is like, yeah, the gospel was delivered to us by those who heard it from Jesus. Uh, Paul is like, no, 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 I heard it from Jesus. So we know that Paul isn't the writer here. Um, The writer goes on, verse five, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, dot, dot, dot. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You guys ever read this in Hebrews? Maybe some of you have been going through it and you, you keep seeing these things where it says, well, it's been, someone wrote somewhere. It's been testified somewhere that, have you guys seen this? Anyone been like, what? Why isn't the author just quoting where it comes from? The author is, knows it and knows the Old Testament by heart, is quoting it verbatim. So why is the author saying, well, you know, someone wrote somewhere and then just diving into an exact verbatim Bible verse? Uh, partly, this is just how the Alexandrian school did it. They're the only city that wrote like this, and that's why we think the author is from there. Uh, but also, it's because the author has such a high view of Scripture that... Uh, the author treats scripture not as just written by Isaiah, right? So Matthew and others will always say, you know, as you know, Isaiah said, or as the prophet said, or as, you know, Moses said. Uh, but this author is always just saying, you know, it says somewhere that, boom. And it's because the author sees all of the Old Testament as spoken by the Holy Spirit, right? All of the Old Testament is, uh, it's those written by humans, it's God-breathed and God-inspired, which is a good lesson for us as we read the Old Testament to remember it's both written by humans but also inspired and written by God. All right. The author says, You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So this is a really, there's a really interesting debate here as to whether it's you made him a little lower than the angels or you made him for a little while lower than the angels. And the best read is probably you made him, Jesus, for a little while 
lower than the angels. And so this is where, you know, the writer is saying, Jesus was in the beginning with God. All things were created through him, but you made him for a little while lower than the angels. It's the same thing as that we read in Philippians 2, right? That, uh, that he was in the beginning with God, but that he emptied himself, right? He, he took on flesh. He humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant. So here you have Jesus in the heavens before creation, but then he kind of, he, he voluntarily empties himself. He makes himself lower than the angels for a little while, but he's always about to go back and reclaim his spot through his sufferings, through his glory, through defeating sin and death. And then that, again, puts us in that throne room where Jesus is sitting down at the right hand of God. Uh, It says, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So again, this is so similar to Philippians 2. He's, uh, it's the same bullet points. He's humbled, he's emptied, he becomes man, he's obedient unto death, and then because of that obedience unto death, he receives this crown of glory. This is so cool because it's early Christian theology, right? This is pre-Paul, this is pre-Hebrews. These authors are interacting with the beliefs the church already had just a couple decades into the church. And so we know that it wasn't just some really smart apostle who made this stuff up. The early church was, was repeating this every week in their, in their liturgy. We live in this already not yet state, right? That Jesus has already become a little lower than the angels. He suffered death, uh, that by the grace of God, he might go before us in that death. And he is fully God, fully human, and he tasted death for everyone. So all things are in subjection to him, but yet we haven't seen it fully flesh out, right? Satan is defeated, yet he's not in chains yet. We're living this sort of already not yet state. We've talked a lot about why God would allow suffering. And this passage is really interesting here. It shows that the answer to why a loving God would allow suffering is not, the answer is not karma, right? That people suffer essentially because they're evil and they deserve it. And if anything has gone wrong, you, you more or less have it coming to you. The answer is not that he allows it, uh, but then we just have to find a way to defend his honor. The answer why he allows bad things to happen to good people is not just to throw your hands up and say you don't know. The answer is to say that God has not allowed suffering without cause, and he doesn't just drag people through it because he doesn't know or doesn't care, but that God himself, though it's a mystery to us, God himself entered into our suffering. He himself went before us, and he tasted death for everybody in order to bring many sons and daughters to glory. I love this pairing that he tasted death. He goes before us. He tasted death for all to bring us to glory. It says, uh, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer, other translations have, this is Jesus, so pioneer or champion or author or captain. So those are the four major translations of this word. Uh, Pioneer, champion, author, or captain. So it was fitting that God, for whom and, and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust 
in him. And again, he says, here I am and the children God has given me. There's so much to unpack here. And I encourage you guys to keep reading through Hebrews. Each time you go through it, it'll start to make more sense. I think on a first read, people read Hebrews, they're like, man, this is, this is difficult. I don't really know what it means. It's at a higher reading level than most of the New Testament. But as you keep reading it, it starts to kind of fall into place. The, the, sort of the, the Tetris things all kind of find their spot, and it all kind of chunks down and, and fits and makes sense. So he, God, made the founder of our salvation, Jesus, perfect through suffering. And some people read this and they say, well, what made him perfect through suffering? Was he not perfect before? Uh, no, that's not what it means. That's, what, that's how we use the word perfect. This means perfect more in the sense of complete, not, uh, not like perfect, like 100% right, but perfect as in uh, perfected or complete. It's a word uh, that they'd use in terms of the training of a priest in making a priest fully ready to carry out their duties. And it says that he was made a champion, the champion or author uh, captain of our salvation by suffering what we deserved. He went ahead of us. Uh, imagine as you read this chapter now and in the future, maybe my favorite translation is captain, right? That he was the captain of our salvation, right? He was the one steering the ship and deciding where we would go. Uh, it also uses this, this word, it's the same word, um, champion, in the sense of I don't know if you guys remember the story of Achilles, of Troy, and Hector. You know, and the, you get these two champions that come out. Basically, the idea is in order to spare thousands of human lives, instead of having two armies go for it, the idea is each side brings out a champion, just like David and Goliath. Each side brings out a champion, and the understanding is whoever wins takes all, right? And rather than go lose hundreds of thousands of lives, let's just have the two champions, the two best people duke it out. And it calls Jesus here this champion going against the devil. It says he is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. If you struggle with shame, if you struggle with feeling guilty about yourself, your life, your soul, meditate on this chapter. Jesus is not ashamed to call you brother or sister because he who sanctifies and we who are sanctified, or he the one who makes holy and we the ones who are made holy, all have one source I don't know if you catch that, what he's getting at. So the, the author skips over a lot of stuff. There's a lot of assumed teaching that the author is skipping over. And we know, we remember that the author is well acquainted with Paul. So who is this one source that they're all from and that they're all in? How are they all from the same family? The one source is Adam. And the author is interacting with this idea here, just as Paul is saying in Romans 5. Paul says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, in this way, death came to all people because all sin. So this is why we are all born into what's called original sin, because we are children, sons and daughters of Adam, who brought, essentially allowed sin to come into the world. Paul goes on. Consequently, just as one trespass, just as one sin resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. So the author here is interacting with this, that we are all brothers and sisters. We are all sons of Adam, that even, even though Jesus was before creation, he was also a son of Adam, like we were. And he calls himself as much. A lot of people don't realize this. Uh, you guys know what um, Jesus' favorite nickname for himself is in the New Testament? 
Son of man, son of man, son of man. And in Greek, it just reads like son of man. But the Hebrew word for man, to which Aramaic is related, when he walked, walked around calling himself a son of man, the word for man is Adam. He's calling himself a son of Adam, son of Adam. Adam is the word for Adam, and it's the word for man. It's the same. It's Adam's name because he stood in for mankind, right? And so he, he, Jesus is calling himself a son of Adam, son of Adam, son of Adam. And we read it as son of man, and we, just, we miss all of that connection there. But Jesus is a son of Adam just like we are, sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. You can enter into that Narnian frame of reference, right? Are you a daughter of Eve? Uh, I always thought that was so cool. All right. Um, We were born into sinful existence. We were born sinners. We were born under this original sin. But Jesus is not ashamed of us. Jesus is not ashamed of you. He's not ashamed to call you sister, and he's not ashamed to call you brother. He's your older brother, That's how the Bible kind of paints him as our firstborn, our oldest brother, made perfect or complete through suffering. And he stands at the front of the boat. He's the captain. He's the the author, the perfecter of our salvation. He's the champion who delivers his people. He is the David that beats Goliath or the, uh, I guess I won't relate him to Hector or or Achilles because both those guys have their own issues. Uh, All right, the last paragraph here. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God." and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. So he, a child of God as we are, yet God as we are not, he shares in our flesh and blood, and he became human in every way. But in death, he broke the power of death. He destroyed the devil. So it reminds me of Israel trembling before the Philistines. You know, they're saying, who will be a champion? Who will be a champion? I think Goliath came out something like 40 days in a row taunting the Philistines saying, who's going to be the champion? Who's going to come out and fight me? Until finally, David goes out, you know, as this young man, probably not even fully grown. He goes out and uh, the children's books always stop after he hits him in the head with the rock. And we think like, that's the end of it. That's not the end of it, right? He hits him in the head with the rock and he walks up to him and picks up his own sword and cuts his head off with it. That's the story of David and Goliath. <laughs> and so then the, question, the bigger question for Jesus, the son of David, is who will defeat death and who will defeat sin? And Jesus steps up. He is the first. He's the captain, the author, the pioneer, the spearhead. And he does the same thing. He defeats death with its own weapons. So just like David hits Goliath, he sort of gives him the knockout hit, but then he goes and kills him with his own weapon. Jesus does the same. He goes on the cross and he seems defeated by it, but then he rises again and he essentially beats death and beats sin through the instruments that Satan used to try to get the Son of God out of the picture. He defeated death and sin by taking on all the sin and dying to it. It's the, the picture over and over of the victors of God's people is that they, they kill the enemy with their own weapons. They use their own schemes against them. Paul says, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Jesus swallowed it up and he delivered those who are afraid of death. We are not, as Christians, we are not at least to be 
afraid of death. And when you look at history, at least at the strongest Christians, you see this consistently across history. One of the things they stand out most for is being willing to give away all of their security and all of their money and all of their allegiance and all of the things that would make them safe. Instead, they give those all away. They make themselves more at risk for death in order to fight for God's cause. And people look on like, what? what's going on? It's why uh, the early Christians could walk out there in the arena with the lions, not afraid of death. And all the Romans looked on like, geez, these guys have something that we do not. And I have to figure out what it is. If you take a few hundred people who are not afraid to die, you can turn the world upside down. And that's what the early church was. It was a few hundred people who were not afraid to die anymore. And they changed the world. Jesus was sent for us. He was sent for human beings. And Hebrews is clear on this. He could not be unlike us if he was to represent us, right? He had to truly represent us. He had to be us. So he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He knew what it was like to be human and he faced every temptation you faced. People get uncomfortable thinking about this. Jesus faced the same temptations you face, but he did not sin. He was tempted to despair. He was tempted to lose hope. He was tempted to think bad thoughts, the thoughts that you don't want anyone else to know you think. He was tempted to think those, but he didn't. He didn't indulge in them, at least. You were temp- uh, he was tempted to be angry or to snap. He was tempted to be prideful, tempted to hate, tempted to lust. That makes people uncomfortable, right? Jesus, as well, like any other human being, was tempted to lust, but he did not enter into that sin. He experienced sneering, drudgery. People spit on him and treated him as nothing. They disrespected him, and ultimately, they killed him. And he felt all of it, though he did not sin. And he stood at the front of the boat for us, representing us, staring down that Goliath, staring down the devil, and he defeated sin and death, that we should no longer live as as slaves to fear and slaves to evil. We don't have to be slaves to death anymore. So the author is saying, hey, you Hebrew Christians in the first century, you're tempted to go back to Judaism, or for you guys here, you're tempted to deconstruct or to just finally just give up because the Christian church is seen as so uncool and so not with the times. Are you tempted to just stop swimming and let your raft be carried downstream by the whims of modern culture and whatever happens to be cool this year that will still make you look like a dinosaur in 30 years? Like you're just tempted to just go with the flow? Jesus died so that you would not be a slave to that fear, that you would not be a slave to the fear of man and the fear of what other people think about you. And if you are with the times now or not with the times now or whatever, man, I mean, our culture is changing so fast, it's crazy. I have video, there's a YouTube video of Barack Obama in 2008 talking about a marriage being between one man and one woman. Guys, 2008 was not very long ago, okay? Our world is changing so fast. The river is slowing so quickly. Not that that's like some issue I want to plant my flag on, but I'm just saying uh, our society is changing so quickly and a lot of people are just saying, man, the church doesn't think I'm cool, or sorry, the, the society doesn't think the church gets it anymore and society keeps changing and if I don't change too, I'm going to be left behind. I'm going to be um, a bigot. I'm going to be not with the times. I'm going to be, uh, you know, whatever, outside the cultural mainstream. And this writer is saying, don't be a slave to fear and don't just let yourself drift in the river. Don't care what what the spirit of the age is or what other people think of you. Jesus died so that you might be free. 
He is our great high priest. He suffered when tempted but never failed. So when you are tempted, he is able to help and give grace in time of need. Because he's gone there before you and he won, right? He already faced down Goliath. So when you see Goliath's minions, you can just rest in Jesus' victory. He's God. He became man. He defeated the devil. And now he is sitting down at the right hand of God again. No angel could pull that off. And now your crimson stained sin is covered whiter than snow, and you can approach the throne of God with boldness. One of my favorite verses coming up in chapter 4 from Hebrews and from the entire Bible. Uh, In the Old Testament, people could not even look at God without falling dead. They couldn't touch the ark without falling dead. They couldn't hear the voice of God without falling dead. And the author of Hebrews is saying, don't go back to that. In Jesus, God himself became your priest doing what you could not do, fighting the fight that you could not fight, and standing up to the devil that you could not face. And now you can approach the very throne itself. You can look at God face to face in the person of Jesus, and you can approach it with boldness. You can walk right in without an appointment uh, because your brother Jesus was a champion for you. Your brother Jesus was not ashamed of you. Your brother Jesus was forever and always has been and always will be But he also came from your father, Adam. And he stood in front of the boat while you cowered in the back. And uh, (laughs) just imagine us cowering in the back while Jesus is at the front commanding the boat. And he took Satan's sword and cut his head off with it. And now you can approach the throne of God with that boldness. But don't fall back. Don't fall back to being slaves of fear. Don't capitulate to the broader culture around you. God became your priest and went before you. So you can approach with boldness. So don't cower in the back of the boat and don't let the river take you on its way. With that, I'll close us. I normally would invite you downstairs, but we don't have any coffee and donuts this week because of the last minute COVID closure of Mojo Monkey. So I'll just pray and then we'll welcome the way to to start setting up. Father, we thank you for this message, Lord, that you are better than the angels, better than Moses, better than the prophets, better than the priests. We thank you for becoming fully human and going before us, experiencing all of our temptation but not succumbing to it. For experiencing all of, our, um, all of the wickedness that comes our way, all of the depression, all of the, um, the discouragement, but being a victor over it, Lord. We thank you for being truly and fully human and going before us so that when we ask why God allows hard things to happen, you can say, that's a mystery, but I will go before you and take on that challenge for you and be the champion at the front of the boat. Help us not to cower, help us not to drift, but to find our footing in you. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a project of the Capital City Church in the West 7th community of St. Paul, Minnesota. Find us on Instagram at Capital City Church STP or visit our website for more information at capitalcitystpaul.com.